Um, we are in a series on the book of James, uh, and we'll be in James chapter 2 today. Uh, James is a, a letter, um, possibly, possibly a sermon uh, that was meant to be distributed around, so it's, uh, it's not written to a specific place like the book of Colossians or Ephesians or Galatians, because those are all people that lived at Ephesus and Colossae and Galatia. James is writing to a bunch of people, and this is meant to be passed around. So this is what we call a general epistle or a Catholic epistle, because it doesn't have a specific place that it's going, but is meant to be passed around. James, uh, we believe, is the the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, not the James that's in the list of disciples um, that you may have heard of, like Peter, James, and John, not that James, it's a different James. Uh, he, he comes to be known as James the Just. Uh, James's emphasis in most of his letter is what we talked about last time, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And he's continuing along that theme here in James chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 1 through 13. So I'm going to read this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, has also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James here is, uh, is speaking to an issue that uh, we see throughout the New Testament. This is not the only place where this issue comes up. It has different shades of nuance uh, to it, how people speak of it. But of central concern in the New Testament church is this issue that when anybody comes into the Christian community, their, their identity, their social status within the community is not defined by anything except who they are in Jesus. And what James, uh, he proposes some hypothetical situations here. He talks about if, if a man who's very clearly wealthy comes into your assembly um, and you treat him better, you get him a better seat, and then you sh shove the poor person off to the side or put them behind a post or something, you're, you're breaking the law. You're breaking the law of God. 
and, and Paul will seem to talk about this having a very clear and practical uh, element in the way that people were treated at the communion table. He seems to be talking about this same issue uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's seeing uh, people kind of have these tears of communion and the poor are coming to the table and there's just crumbs left and, and there's nothing left for them and, and they leave being unfulfilled, unfed from the table. And we know, too, that the early church really struggled with this about who should be in and what is the basis on them of them being in and part of the community. So this is, this is a New Testament issue. This is not an anomaly. This is not James spotting something that nobody else is seeing. James speaks to it very clearly and, and at more length and more directly as he is wont to do. As we've already seen, he is, he's very comfortable being blunt in how he talks about these issues. And, and we, we need to listen to James. And we need to listen to what all of James is saying. Because it's very easy to read James 2 or any other portion of James, any of Scripture, and kind of put it in a box and not think about it and just declare yourself, I'm good, I'm, I'm fine on this one. If a poor person walked in, of course I wouldn't put them at the back of the, the room. Of course I would not. And we sort of excuse ourselves from the examination of Scripture because we find an easy way to abide by this, what James calls this law of liberty. But this problem is sneakier than that. And it's harder to get away from than just that. Because the nature of how we treat people based on their appearance is something that often happens without us even thinking about it. Without even thinking, we can have reactions or lack of reactions based on how somebody looks. And what can happen without even us paying attention oftentimes is we screen through our lives until we only are with people who will make us comfortable. And guess what often happens when you're doing that? Everybody looks just like you. Naturally, you and I are want to do this. We, we drift towards the corners of the room with people just like us. And, and I don't think that uh, if we imagine this hypothetical situation that James is putting in, I don't think many of us would say, ugh, the poor person, let's make them sit back there. I don't think that would happen. However, we have to look a little bit more closely. Because James is, we are interpreting this hypothetical situation in our present day scenario. And we're imagining somebody for some reason comes to our church, happens to come through our front door. That is a scenario that doesn't exist when James is writing. There are no church buildings. There are not signs in front of churches because, by and large, churches are illegal. And this is a time when people are meeting in homes, and people are getting to those churches only by personal invitation, okay? 
You're not stumbling into any church meeting because church meetings can be dangerous if you don't end up you know, imprisoned, paying a fine or something, which James alludes to. You, you may end up being cut off from the community at the very least. So these are personal invitations that he is hypothesizing here. And that puts us in a different position. Because then we have to ask, who does get invited to our church? Before they even get into the room, who gets the invite to come in to the room? Well, now you and I may be in iffy territory. Because let me tell you who I invite into our community. Me. I invite me. I invite more of me. I like me. I am comfortable with me. I understand me. I don't always like me. But generally, I like me. I want more people like me. It's hard enough for me to meet anybody. And if they're more like me, then it just makes it easier. So the easiest thing that I will do is invite the person who is like me. And if they're not like me, I at least will probably be, de be defined by, by proximity, by geography. Maybe they're not like me, but they're near me. The people who are near me are the people that I will invite. Guess what? The people who are near are also most likely people who are like, like you. And people make that decision unconsciously, and unfortunately plenty of times they make it consciously. I, I, I do not want to be around those kinds of people. I, um, I read this book recently uh, in the past couple of months called The Warmth of Other Suns. Big fat book about uh, the great migration from the South to the other parts of the United States by uh, populations of African Americans, people who uh, are, are the, the children of slaves, the great grandchildren of slaves who are leaving what, are base, what is basically slavery. And in the early 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, there's this mass movement away from the South to get away from these systems of oppression that have destroyed their families. And, uh, you know, we tend to think as we read history that the South is the place where racism is contained. And so you, you're kind of like, there's four people, th three people who the story is following. And you're, we're looking at this whole issue through the lens of these people's story, and you're just kind of rooting for them to get out, to get into a safer place where there's more possibilities for them. There really are more possibilities for them on the West Coast or, or in the North or whatever. And so when they finally get out and they're finally getting more opportunities, you feel this kind of relief as you're reading these stories, but then you realize that waiting for them many times is just more racism. And you have the story of how Chicago is built and how you can trace the direction of the, the migration of African Americans in the way that poverty extends down the length of the building of Chicago. And you have these stories of finally an African American would move into the neighborhood where they finally have accumulated enough wealth and they buy a house within that's an entirely white neighborhood and you have literal riots in Chicago 
that someone with dark skin would dare to move into a white neighborhood and they ultimately storm the building, throw everything out, and burn the place down, even though it's owned by a white person. The message is you don't let black people into our neighborhoods. We tend to screen who we live near. And it, it is unfortunate, but it is fact that many of those people that are in that crowd were in that crowd decades ago go to church on Sunday and praise the name of Jesus. It, it, it is not troops of, of pagans that lynch people in the South. It is church-going Bible believers. And it is not at all uncommon to drive through a parking lot in the South and see the Confederate flag on the back of church people's vehicles because it's their heritage and they don't hate anybody not caring that in the name of that flag, people were lynched and distributed as property. Because it's about them and they, what they want that symbol to mean. This problem that James is putting his finger on is not as simple as allowing you and me to say, well, we would never kick a poor person to the back of the room. We would never do that. That's way too easy. That's way too easy. Who are the people that you're in proximity to? Who are the people who are an actual part of your community? Who has preference? To whom do you and I show partiality? And listen, I'm not saying that people who show preference and partiality are, are longing for the days of the lynching tree, okay? Mostly, you and I never would think about that. We're, we're horrified by that idea. But before we even get to the part where we think about what we want and don't want, we just silently screen through our lives, showing partiality. It is in our nature to do it. We, we, are, we are being formed in that direction all the time. You know, I, I'm reading this other book for fun um, about basketball. Um, it's just this long thing. It's, it's an oral history of basketball. And there's this chapter about how racism had played itself out in the NBA. And there's a little piece with, this, with John Thompson. You know who John Thompson is? Raise your hand if you know who John Thompson is. He was a player himself, a uh, good one, and he, he became probably most famous as the coach of Georgetown. Um, he won an NBA title. He was Patrick Ewing. If you don't, no, okay. John Thompson. You can Google him at some point. And John Thompson was, was talking about uh, how so many of his peers didn't get to play because there was a, a quota, an unsaid or, or said behind closed doors quota that you should only have two black players on, on most white teams. And he said one of the terrible things about that system was not just that players who were good didn't get to play, but they got sent home being told there was something wrong with them. 
that they're not good enough to play. And they had to go and tell their communities, I'm not good enough to play, when in fact it had nothing to do with how well they played. And what he said was, um, I don't want the opportunity to, to be equal with you. I want the opportunity to be better than you. Now, when you're reading the sports context, that just sounds awesome. Like John Thompson wants to go on the court and dominate you, and he, he could, probably even now as a very old man. But I would say that that sort of spirit goes outside of the arena of athletics and, and infects us all, that we want to be able to demonstrate our superiority over lots of people all the time. It is our habit. And oftentimes the, the, the people that make us comfortable, maybe you don't consciously say, I'm going to dominate these fools like some, some guy on a basketball court, but you can at least hold your own. Nobody will be superior to me, and maybe I have the chance quietly to show my own superiority. We, we, are, we are people that crave the ability to put people on ladders and scales and to come out on the right side of that judgment. That happens all the time by our nature, and I would say that we're culturally being formed that way as well. We measure things all the time to show who is better, to show who is more effective, who is more efficient. I mean, the, the economy of our, our social nature now at this point is based upon how many responses you get on social media. People track numbers of followers and likes and whatever the other things are. Because in us, we want, we crave this. And those programmers who make stuff like that, they know it. They program to it on purpose to hook you, to addict you, to make you crave it so that you will use their thing. They want you to get a little dopamine hit every time somebody comes and likes your thing because they know you want to be better. And James is seeing that disease invade the church. The church is this place where these people are favoring the rich over the poor. And James says this is shameful because it breaks the law. And, and how James talks about the law is, is interesting, and we, we won't go into all of that, but the way that he talks about the law is pretty clearly through the lens of the way that Jesus talked about the law. And so in James's idea uh, about how if you break one piece of the law, you break the whole law, that, that's very Jesus on the, the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's very Jesus. That, that it's so easy to transgress the law. And for James, this is a massive problem. This is not a minor point. He, he borrows the language, it seems, of Leviticus 19, who, where the law tells the people of Israel, you cannot judge in a courtroom in favor of the rich or the poor because they are rich or poor. You have to, you have to decide on the merits of their case in the courtroom. And James here is just talking about the side of deciding against the poor. 
One of, one of the commentators in this passage talks about how from the outside it may seem in Christian circles that you favor the poor, that God favors the poor. But that is because the scales of justice are so heavily weighted toward the rich that putting your thumb on the scales to right balance them makes it seem like favoritism and it makes people uncomfortable. And, and all I can tell you, and, and I think James would say the same thing, is you got to read the Old Testament. You have to read the law. Because a lot of times when, when the prophets are coming to speak, they are specifically defending the poor and saying, you are crushing the poor. The systems of imbalanced power naturally crush the poor. And all the places, all the people who naturally are crushed by imbalanced and improperly weighted scales and systems, God cares for these people specially. And, he, and he's always assigned his people the task of living in such a way that those people especially have hope for a life that can be full of flourishing. And so from the outside, it may seem like favoritism. That is the intensity of God's concern for the poor, the widow, the orphan. And James is doing the same thing here. He seems to be showing the favoritism towards the poor so the scales will be rightly balanced for once. And if, he says, and if you do not do this, you are a lawbreaker. What he goes on to say by the end of this passage is, judgment happens looking at how you do this. And if you cannot provide mercy for the poor, the weak, the crushed. You should be afraid. That's what James is saying. You should be concerned. Now, for, for many of us, we, we grew up in churches where what we heard was, if, if we believe the right thing, then, then it doesn't, matter what we do that's not why or how we're saved is James is James here undermining that teaching and and I would say no not at all I believe that there is one ultimate mind behind all of scripture and scripture does not fight itself there's not contrary agendas in scripture and what James is saying is very much in accord with how Jesus teaches. If you, if you don't show mercy, you will not be shown mercy. Jesus says that. That's, those are Jesus' words that James is using. The key here is, for James, the people who actually see Jesus and trust him for who he claims to be as the king who actually trust him as the king. Your life must change. It is not your own life anymore. And diagnostically, if we can look at the outside of your life and say, 
you roll over the poor, you engage in this sin of partiality all the time without thinking, diagnostically, what does that say about your heart? If this is happening, what is going on inside of you? And that is a useful and appropriate question. If you and I think that the gospel is just believe the right things, sit around, wait to go to heaven, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Do you hear what I'm saying? That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the king. And you should trust him and you should follow him. The gospel, the good news is about Jesus. And you need to trust Jesus. We are not here selling some death insurance policy. That is not what the collection of the people of God is ever meant to be. If you see and you trust Jesus and you believe him and you love him, your life cannot remain your own. And if all you want Jesus for is that death insurance policy, then you don't trust Jesus, you don't know him, you don't believe the things that you say that you believe. That's what James is saying. If all you want from Jesus is the ability to feel good on your deathbed, then you are not following Jesus. You are following something else. That, that's, that's disturbing. That is pointed. That will get under the, the crusty exterior of your life and turn it over, and we can see what's in there. What do you do? Look, we, we live in, in the middle of complex systems that oppress lots of people. We just have to look at the, the tags on the clothes that we're wearing. How do you extricate yourself from that and live like this? And here's where I can tell you. I don't know. I don't, this world is so complicated. I don't know. I can't tell you how to fix everything. I, I don't know. What I can tell you is you need to ask these questions. Who are you in proximity to? Who are your friends? And if somebody looked at my life, and looked at your life, looked at our life together, would they see signs of a Jesus who shows no partiality and loves people, all of them, no matter their, their socioeconomic status, their, their married status, their gender, their, their color, he just loves them. Could they look at your life and mine and ours together and come to that conclusion? I, I, don't, I don't know. Often I look at my own life and say, no. I'm really bad at this. I can't excuse myself from James. I don't get to just put it in a box and say, check. But for James, the hope is never that you would get yourself so right that, that then God has basically partnered with you 
that you've teamed up together and you've sorted yourself out. Because what James sees as, as the law, the royal law, is actually the, the word of Jesus. His teaching on the Old Testament, his teachings, it's, it's him. It's Jesus. The hope in the book of James is all about Jesus. It is not, the hope of all things does not hinge, does not rest on you being able to figure this out and do it enough. Just this past weekend, I was at uh, our regional meeting for our denomination, Presbytery, and we had a, we had a guy, he's one of, he's like a vice president or something of InterVarsity, a college ministry, and he, um, he was talking about uh, diversity, diversity of culture, ethnicity, uh, ages, whatever that is, chronology. And he was doing this question and answer time, and somebody was asking about how in, in our day and time, the, the way that our culture gets at this is to heap shame on people. Shame of, of how they, they fail at this and how their, their family has historically failed at this. And this guy said, the power of the gospel is never in shame. It's, it's not in shame. And the purpose of James's letter is not to heap shame on you enough that you'll behave better. Now, it is appropriate to read the Word of God and to let it press on you, to let it prick your heart, to tear you to shreds. But it doesn't leave you there. Because the whole, the whole thrust, the focus of Scripture is going to bring you to Jesus. And James's emphasis here is the nature of Jesus. The reason why this sin of partiality is, is so terrible to see among Christians is because it's the exact opposite of the nature of our God. Favor is now given to everybody who would come to him. And the only people that Jesus deals with are poor people. James is certainly talking about people who are materially poor. But what he will not let you forget, what Jesus will not let you forget, is that poverty is often unseen. And that if you see yourself rightly, you and I are people bankrupt, deeply poor in our spirits. And to act like we are superior to anyone is to see Jesus acting in profound generosity and to turn around and act like somebody else. The gospel extends charity to people like you and I prodigiously, superfluously, piles and piles of generosity, the way that God is towards the world is generous and kind. 
And if you are sitting here reading James 2 and saying, I have lived a life of partiality. I have screened out who I'm comfortable with. I only side with the people who are like me, who, who give me social power, who, who make me comfortable. Then Jesus, he, he's way better than me. And that is your hope. Jesus is not like you. Jesus is not like me. Jesus is way, way, way better than me and you. And so if you hear how deeply James despises this behavior in the church and you are feeling the weight of conviction and shame, the first response is not, I've got to first just fix everything and then come to Jesus. You have it exactly reversed. Come to Jesus. Let him be generous to you again and again and again and eventually over the course of your whole life that should transform you from the inside out so that you are in fact a merciful person. And when you fail the standards of God's generosity and mercy, the first response is to come back to Jesus and then it is to go be like him. First come see Jesus. Trust him. Let him be your king. Let him be generous and kind. Let him be the hero of your story. Throw to him, I have failed you again, God. I have done it by habit. I have done it by nature. I've not even thought about it. I have only favored people who are like me. That is my, that is my predisposition. I've done it again, Jesus. And what Jesus does not say to you is, well, I had, I had this much mercy and you used the last bit of it last time. You're out of luck, my friend. You and I will always be a charity case. Always. And Jesus does not create seats at his table based on tears of importance. It is a flat table. And the only seat of honor is his. First and foremost, hear James's words and run to this generous God who is affixed into the ground his commitment to you to be generous and kind forever. The second response that you should have is always ever what, it, what you should do when you hear the gospel. You should repent. Turn around and go the other way. If you see Jesus and all of his generosity towards you this morning, and you see all the ways that you've hoarded mercy, that you've only allowed yourself to be seated with people who are just like you. If you've shown partiality that you didn't even know you were showing, turn around and go the other way. You don't have to have it all figured out. Maybe you're like me, and, and I tend to say, well, if... Once I understand all that I need to do, then I will start going the right way. Don't do that. You'll never get there. Never going to happen. Maybe the, maybe the simplest thing that you can do 
in, in this movement of responding to Jesus, repenting and going the other way, is find that person who you are thinking of that you swerved away from because they made you uncomfortable, whether because of the way that they were dressed, the color of their skin, the way that they talk, who that they sleep with. That specific person, invite them to your house and have them over for dinner. Jesus has been radically generous with you in putting you at his table a wonderful reflection in response to that generosity is to do the same with others and bring them to your table. Maybe you are scared to do that. I get it. In that club myself, very often, don't do it alone. Grab some of the people you're comfortable with. Make it a big meal. Okay, it doesn't have to be a candle at dinner for two. Grab some friends. Make it a neighborhood feast. Have a block party. I don't care how you do it. Take a small step in the direction of the people that you would otherwise swerve away from. Because those are the people that Jesus loves to be generous to. And you know it. Because you're one of them too. This is a. This will mess with you. And it's meant to. If you are uncomfortable right now, good. Okay? You're not alone. I hear you. And, and you and I, we can work this out together. All right? I am, I am in process on this myself. And if you need somebody to talk to and figure this out, if you need somebody to come to your block party, I will be there. Scheduling allowed. I'll be there. Jesus loves his church. And he has more than enough at his table for all kinds of people that I would otherwise not be seen with. We are meant to be a people that don't just get the life insurance policy, but are instead meant to be shaped like Jesus, formed by him, and look like him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We confess that we often don't treat you as the Lord that we confess. We treat that as a ceremonial first name or something instead of the actual Lord, the King, the one who reigns over our lives. And God, we we know that we are we are inclined to two different impulses. One is, is to ignore you and to just keep trying to move up the ladder of advancement to put people out of our sight or in our circle that we can be better than wanting to constantly prove our superiority. And if we didn't have that naturally in us, we have a culture that teaches us how to do that all the time. On the other hand, our other inclination is 
We don't need Jesus. We just need to just need to obey him and just do the things that he told us to do. We just work real hard to be the best people that we can. Shunting you off as if we, we only needed you once or twice. We are in perpetual need of you, God. And you have more than enough for us. You have been incredibly kind and generous to us. And we will never stop living off of your generosity. God, we ask you to transform us. Help us to see clearly, to to be healed of the blindness that screens out people from our eyes. Help us, Lord Jesus. We cannot make ourselves better no matter how hard we try. What we need is transformation. And only you, the giver of that, what James calls the implanted word, can change us deeply from the inside out. Help us to be ever more grateful for your generosity. Transform us and remind us to give it away to others. An extension of your own charity. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are faithful and kind to us even when we, like forgetful children, run off in a million directions without you. Your mercy is what we count on, Lord Jesus. Help us to be merciful. We love you. Amen.